0: But you could make an argument that the Declaration of Independence is only the second most important text written that year. Because 1776 was also the year that Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations. Smith's work helped found the field of economics and revolutionized how societies understood and organized their economies. In fact, so many decisions and transformations are attributed to Adam Smith that his reputation is, well, let's say, hotly contested.
1: Smith has a very complicated reputation, um, and that's kind of putting it lightly. So my name is Glory Liu. I'm a college fellow and lecturer in social studies at Harvard.
0: The Wealth of Nations became hugely popular and continues to shape our understanding of economics and politics.
1: In the popular view, Smith is thought of as you know, the father of capitalism, the father of modern economics, his most famous ideas being things like self-interest and the invisible hand, right? The invisible hand of the market, not the heavy hand of government.
0: In short, many see Smith as an economist and only an economist.
1: That's the popular view, and it's very narrow and it's often very politicized. Among Smith's scholars, though, especially historians and political theorists, We tend to think of Smith as primarily a moral philosopher, somebody who wrote the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations, and gave lectures on jurisprudence, wrote about the history of astronomy, bell lettres, rhetoric, and everything else.
0: This is how Smith understood himself. He was a philosopher, and he saw his work on economics as deeply connected with his work in moral philosophy.
1: So if you look at the frontispiece of the Wealth of Nations, which was first published in 1776, his name um, printed, you know, as the author of the text is Adam Smith, LLD, Fellow of the Royal Society and former Professor of Moral Philosophy at Glasgow. So, you know, even in the work that would later become known as the founding text of modern economics, it's clear that Smith wanted to be known as a moral philosopher, a a kind of broad-minded, ambitious social scientist of the Enlightenment, not what we now think of as narrowly economics or an economist.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Glory Liu to discuss Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Tell us about Adam Smith's life.
1: Smith was born in um, a kind of seaside town called Kirkcaldy in Scotland in 1723, He was educated at a local school in the area, and then he went on to study at Oxford and eventually came back to Scotland and taught at Edinburgh and the
0: University of Glasgow. In 1751, Smith became a professor at Glasgow University, teaching courses on logic. Two years later, he became the university's head of moral philosophy. What did it mean to be a moral philosopher in his time? So the term moral in Smith's
1: time means something much more capacious and expansive than it does for us now. Right? When we say the word moral philosopher, or just you know, something is moral, um, we're usually thinking about um, rightness and wrongness right? from the standpoint of morality. Um, it's, it's ethical. Um, but in Smith's time, the term moral was really used in contrast to physical um, so it meant something more like mental or intellectual and social. So when we say that Smith wrote a book of moral philosophy, it's it's not so much that he wrote a set of moral precepts, right? Thou shalt not kill, <laughs> you should always obey your conscience, um, you know, drinking is bad <laughs> and the like. Um, it's more like what we would call today moral psychology. Smith was interested in explaining um, what goes on in our minds when we are making judgments about our own behavior and about other people's
0: behavior. Smith saw that our actions and judgments about ourselves and others stem from sympathy. He meant sympathy beyond just sorrow or pity. He meant in the broad sense of being able to put ourselves in others' shoes and feel what they are feeling. According to Smith, to get a better understanding of ourselves, we should imagine ourselves in someone else's position to see how other people would see us.
1: And so that's, that's what the theory of moral sentiment is about. It's, it's about um, how we come to know ourselves um, in relation to other people. Smith had this ability to really vividly illustrate what it's like to be inside our own mind and to kind of see both inside and outside of ourselves.
0: Smith taught these theories at Glasgow for 13 years, and it was during this time that he published the Theory of Moral Sentiments. Then, in 1763, a British politician named Charles Townshend offered Smith a job tutoring his stepson, the Duke of Buccleuch. Smith left his university teaching career behind and toured around Europe with his new pupil.
1: And they go on tour in Europe to um, Paris, Toulouse, and Geneva. Um, and it's there that Smith encounters these illustrious thinkers of the French Enlightenment as well.
0: One particularly influential group he met were the physiocrats. They had pioneered a new economic theory called physiocracy, which can be loosely translated as government of nature. The physiocrats believed that a nation's wealth came from the land instead of from manufacturing or commerce. And so they placed a great deal of importance on agriculture and land development.
1: And Smith thought that this was a little bit too narrow, right? He thought that manufacturing and commerce actually could contribute a lot to a nation's wealth and overall growth.
0: The physiocrats also believed in a natural order given by God. They believed that a society governed by the laws of nature was the ideal society, and that these laws of nature, in contrast to artificial, human-created laws like the social contract, allowed people to live together without sacrificing freedoms. The physiocrats were also defenders of free trade. They believed countries should trade their excess resources from the land for those that they cannot produce themselves.
1: Smith, of course, was sympathetic to the idea of free trade and, um, you know, freedom of occupation, but he resisted the idea that it could be forcibly imposed on a nation and that, like, an ideal, you know, distribution or kind of ideal constitution of the nation's economic capacities could be directed.
0: After his travels with his pupil, he returned to Scotland and started assembling his new ideas combining his earlier work on moral philosophy with these new insights on economics.
1: He returns to England and Scotland to begin writing The Wealth of Nations in over basically a 10-year period. Um, But we know that Smith had actually drafted earlier parts of The Wealth of Nations um, between 1762 and 1767, really. He's giving his lectures on jurisprudence. Um, And at this point in in his career, he'd already become famous for writing the theory of moral sentiments. So again, it's important to keep in mind that, right, in terms of Smith's ambitions, he's not setting out to kind of found economics and become the father of free trade or free enterprise, right? He's continuing this very ambitious project of um, trying to derive general principles of human behavior and human society, starting with How and why do humans behave morally? What are the moral sentiments and how do we kind of acquire them and and follow moral rules? Um, How do we understand the history of law and government? And then how do we understand the the forces of wealth?
0: Smith was also influenced by one of the most remarkable and brilliant philosophical movements in history, the Scottish Enlightenment. Key figures from this movement include Smith's teacher, Francis Hutcheson, his best friend, David Hume, and his university colleagues, like Thomas Reed and Adam Ferguson.
1: They're representative of a distinct way of thinking about man and society and systematizing principles of man and society. And they kind of model themselves after Newton, right, hoping to discover universal, constant scientific principles about the relationship between man, government, and society. And the idea being that, you know, if human beings like the fundamental particles of physics, have an essential, unchanging nature, then we can understand the conditions under which you know, people and societies behave differently. So, you know, it's important to remind ourselves that the wealth of nations is just one part of this bigger social science that has its roots in Scottish Enlightenment thinking and then kind of radiates
0: outward. These were the major philosophical changes happening in Europe at the time. But there were political changes as well. On the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, the British colonies were fighting for their independence. No one knew how this would play out. Would the colonies gain some independence, but still be under British control? Or would they become their own nation, completely independent?
1: And so it's at this really critical moment where Smith's readers know that the colonial question, which Smith writes about in The Wealth of Nations, is right on the front of their mind. It's right at the front of national and international politics. And some of Smith's immediate readers and critics actually tell him in private correspondence, like, this book is great. You did a really good job systematizing these principles. But there are times at which I think you're being a little bit too polemical, right? It, it speaks too much to present issues, they'll say. And of course, they're talking about the American question, right? What to do about these kind of rowdy colonies.
0: Smith thought the colonies should be independent, but maintain a free trade relationship with Britain and even possibly an informal military alliance. Smith was also openly critical of British imperialism in general. By this time, the British Empire had set up colonies all around the world, including parts of Africa, the Caribbean islands, and India. He was not in favor of how Britain was bulldozing their way through other countries for their own economic gain, without regard to the public, either the British public or the inhabitants of the colonies themselves. So colonialism, imperialism,
1: state capture, right, these are all matters of global politics that loom large in the wealth of nations.
0: This shift in Smith's career from moral philosophy to political economy has intrigued scholars and historians for years, especially in Germany. In fact, they refer to it as the Adam Smith problem.
1: Smith, in the theory of moral sentiments, is fundamentally interested in and and sees humans as being fundamentally motivated by sympathy. But then by the time we get to the wealth of nations, right, suddenly it's just self-interest. So the theory of Das Adam-Smith-Problem goes is that Smith changed his mind and he became a materialist. Um, And that happened because he encountered these thinkers in France who converted him. But fundamentally, Das Adam-Smith-Problem is... A question about the philosophical compatibility between sympathy and self-interest. I think oftentimes when we ask about the compatibility between the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations, we're asking something like, are ethics and economics compatible, right? Does modern economics, the way we see it, have a moral foundation, right? Is capitalism moral? Those are the new kinds of questions around the compatibility of the moral philosophy and the political economy of Adam Smith. Those are the kinds of questions that I think people are bringing to Smith today. I tend to think that what unites the two works is his method, his approach to trying to understand the principles of human behavior in human society. It's this kind of looking out into the world, Using observation, um, paying really close attention to detail, using history to kind of test theories, um, and then coming up with general principles based on those observations.
0: Now I would love for you to give us uh, a summary of the book. How is it structured? What are the the most powerful stories or arguments that, that are in there?
1: So I like to think about The Wealth of Nations as a book about economic life. And notice I didn't say it's a book about economics, like principles of economics. It's a book about economic life. And the title, the full title, is An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. It's an investigation into the nature of wealth, what it is, how it's measured, what causes it to increase or decrease, what stunts its growth. And crucially, it's about the wealth of nations, not the wealth of individuals. So five books, two volumes, huge book. (laughs) I'm not going to be able to cover every single thing here. But I think that summarizing really briefly, um, based on the structure of the book, again, illuminates just how remarkable of a book it is and how different it is compared to what we often think it is about So book one is really the first part of the title, right? The Nature of Wealth. And this is where Smith introduces the building blocks of his analysis. So he has the famous illustration of the pin factory um, to talk about the division of labor, right? One man draws the wire, another man cuts it, another man sharpens the pin, another one puts the head on. And it's because of the division of labor that you have an increase in the productive powers of individuals and of nations. He also introduces, um, you know, these other building blocks, definitions of price, labor, wages, and the like. Book two is, is, you know, similarly building blocks, but instead of covering the nature of wealth and how it's produced, it covers things like money, stock, and capital. So how does wealth flow? Book three is my favorite, and I think it's the most interesting because it is unlike other parts of the book. It's where Smith turns to history, starting from the fall of Rome, (laughs) leading right up to the beginning of the period in which Smith is living. And he's turning to history to test the models of growth that he sort of begins elucidating in the first two books, right? So what is wealth? How does it flow? And then book three, he suddenly goes, what thwarts its progress, right? If there is a natural progression to how societies develop, how does that go wrong? And that's where history plays a big role. Book four is where he brings that kind of historical and institutional analysis right up to the present, right? Right up to the time in which he is living. And this is where he launches his critique of existing policies and existing frameworks for understanding the nature of national wealth. So two main targets in particular, the mercantile and imperial system of Great Britain, right? He tries to take down the idea that wealth consists in hoarding gold and silver coin and that we can increase wealth. By beggaring other nations and, um, you know, keeping all the toys for ourselves, right? The favorable balance of trade. Export more, import less, right? He calls it, a, it's, it's, um, it's a way of understanding wealth as zero sum, right? And Smith's launching a huge critique against this whole mentality, but the other system that he targets is what we were talking about earlier, the physiocratic system or agricultural system in France. And, you know, he thinks this is kind of mistaken on two counts. One, it ignores the productive powers of manufacturers and commerce. But also he's, um, he's concerned about um, directing or imposing an idealized version of uh, natural law upon a society. Lastly, we get to book five, which I think a lot of people don't realize is the longest part of The Wealth of Nations. Um, and this is where Smith outlines what I call the politics of political economy. So, book five is devoted to principles that undergird, undergird sound policies for managing national wealth, right? Providing for security, law, public uh, works, education, um, national debt, right? It's about Policy and it's about management. So that's what the book covers from start to finish. And I think it's worth stepping back and realizing that this is very different from what you would expect if you opened up your standard textbook in an Econ 1 class at a university. Um, You know, no equations, no graphs. He relies a lot on history, he relies a lot on observation and illustration. Um, And there are real people in it, right? Real people with real jobs, real countries, and real history. So that's why I say it's, it's a book about economic life. It's an embodied book. It's a living text. It's not about abstract principles.
0: Smith was writing before the Industrial Revolution fully took off. There weren't factories and mass production on the scale that would come. But there were still changes taking place, especially in his hometown of Kirkcaldy.
1: Kirkcaldy, for example, was an influential trading port in, you know, even in the 17th century. Um, by the 1730s, there was a huge revival of the linen industry. Um, by the 1770s and 1780s, right, when Smith is writing The Wealth of Nations, um, they're starting to break into things like cotton, stockings, and shipbuilding. Glasgow, where Smith taught for many years, um, becomes a city that's dominated by trading elite families. Um, and, you um, you know, the English colonies, um, the colonial trade becomes central to how people like Smith um, in Scotland and in England are thinking about economic integration and and global trade, um, the rise of um, a different kind of society whose relations are based primarily on exchange, right? Not everybody can produce their own subsistence, right? We're not all independent farmers anymore. Suddenly, there's interdependency and mutual exchange. And when societies are um, primarily characterized by those kinds of relations, things start to look different. And I think that's why Smith's work was so ahead of its time, It was because he was attuned to these changes, right, that were happening as he was living. And he tried to capture them and also show what impact they would have in the long run.
0: With the rise of industrialization came the fall of the previous economic system, feudalism. The feudal economy depended on serfs who were essentially indentured servants farming a king or nobleman's land. Society was strictly divided along class lines, with little mobility and often harsh treatment from lords.
1: Feudalism was the system of, of downward dependency. Um, right? Kings are reliant on lords for security, and lords are reliant on their vassals and knights for security, and the serfs who provide them with subsistence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but but feudalism was, was violent, right? You were always in fear of invasions from outsiders or from, you know, other lords and other barons and other knights who were trying to compete for territory and land and riches. Um, And it wasn't particularly wealthy overall, right? And and especially when you think about all those serfs who have no freedom, um, it wasn't exactly what we would call a state of human flourishing.
0: As feudalism faded and trade increased, democracy increased as well. Now, an individual could trade with whomever they wanted instead of giving their goods to only their lords
1: the The kind of advent of societies based primarily on exchange rather than on dependency um, introduced order, good government, and liberty for individuals right and it 's that liberty, that kind of modern liberty, freedom from being dependent on other people, freedom from subservient relations that he says is the most important of all of its effects.
0: It'd be great to move into legacy now and and reception. Um, How was the book initially received? And and of all the books about human psychology and, and incentives, why is this one endured so much?
1: It has a kind of a lukewarm reception which I think is probably surprising to most people who are familiar with at least the popular image of Smith's day, right? The Wealth of Nations is not, as some, one scholar once put it, the intellectual shot heard round the world, right? It was not this kind of like bang out of the cannon and suddenly everybody's proclaiming free trade and free enterprise. That's not at all what happened.
0: The Wealth of Nations was not by any means Smith's most influential book immediately following publication. For a long time, Smith's 1759 book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, was much more widely read and celebrated.
1: The Wealth of Nations has a different reception story in the United States. Um, It also is very well known. Um, It's considered the best book on matters of political economy and finance. But it doesn't have the connotation of being revolutionary, right? Right. Very few people are going around waving the wealth of nations around and saying, Adam Smith, the father of economics, right, says this and therefore we should do that. It's it's much more of a kind of technical, neutral, but not necessarily politically neutral, right, but like it's a technical resource that people like James Madison, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton especially, can kind of take chunks of it apply the logic to a specific policy issue like, you know, starting a national bank or making a case for promoting manufacturers and and using the kind of underlying economic argument to to support a different institutional agenda. And they do that in ways that kind of act separately from Smith's intellectual authority. So it's important, but it's not revolutionary, right? It's not necessarily paradigm shifting. And there definitely isn't kind of an intellectual authority around Smith in the 18th century in America.
0: But as political economy became more popular as a field of study, the book began to take on a different legacy.
1: What I found that uh, really does the work is the kind of creation of political economy as a science worth pursuing for its own sake. So when political economy becomes an academic field, suddenly, you know, it's not just reading the wealth of nations to kind of pick out the logic of certain kinds of policies and see how they apply to immediate issues that the nation is facing. It's more about, okay, is this scientifically consistent? Um, What are the kind of transcendental principles that uh, speak beyond the time for which the book was written. And when you start to look at the kinds of academic texts emerging in the early 19th century, Trying to form a science of political economy, they're systematically critiquing Smith, or systematically kind of um, going through Smith and saying, you know, here's what's good, here's what's bad, here's what withstands the test of time, and here's what here's what doesn't. Right? Here's what seems scientifically valid, and here's what doesn't. Here's what doesn't seem that way. Um, regardless of you know what these later authors say about what Smith got right, they all agree that Smith was the founder of the science, right? So, like, political economy has to start somewhere, right? The science of political economy needs a founder. (laughs) And they all agree that, you know, Smith might not have been the first. There were other people who wrote about political economy. But Smith gave scientific value to political economy, right? He put the flag in the sand.
0: This process of combing through and critiquing Smith's work is how he gets the title of the father of economics.
1: And that process really, you know, it it never ends. (laughs) Even in the late 19th century, a hundred years after Smith first wrote The Wealth of Nations, um, Publishers Weekly put out a contest for its readers asking what's the best book on political economy? Right? This is 100 years after The Wealth of Nations is written. And the, and people said that The Wealth of Nations was the number one book on political economy. It was tied actually with John Stuart Mill's principles of political economy. So, you know, there there's, there's a lot of work that was done by... Um, by people who wanted to create a science of political economy specific for American circumstances, um, and how Smith could be reinterpreted and adapted for those circumstances. And that's a big part of the story about why we get kind of um, a version of Smith as Smith the scientist, Smith the father
0: of economics. One of Smith's best-known ideas in The Wealth of Nations is the phrase, the invisible hand of the market. This phrase plays an important role in how the 20th century United States reappropriated Smith and the wealth of nations.
1: The invisible hand gets reinvented as this slogan in the 20th century, right? The invisible hand of the market, not the heavy hand of government. Or, you know, it's it's the magic of the invisible hand um, that makes nations wealthy and makes people free. Um, And that emerges in kind of mid-20th century Um, revivals of free market economics, this idea that markets are self-regulating, self-correcting, and that they're underpinned by individuals following their rational self-interest.
0: The Great Depression of the 1930s turned this view of the invisible hand on its head. In 1929, the U.S. stock market crashed, which shouldn't have been possible according to Smith's theories. If the invisible hand of the market was self-regulating and self-correcting, then how could the stock market collapse and ruin the economy the way it did? Economists of the time were looking for a new truth about markets. And so they reinterpreted the term the invisible hand.
1: And so thinkers at the University of Chicago, starting in the 1930s into the 1940s, um, are, they're a mixed bag, but one thing that unites them is there a view that you know markets can and do work under specific conditions so how can we recover the principles of a liberal society right that can still be free still rely on markets but but without kind of the the dangers of of the gilded age Um, And that kind of like sympathy towards free markets really gets heightened in the 1960s and 1970s. So you have this generation of um, thinkers like George Stigler and Milton Friedman who began to look at Smith's works and see not only a kind of uh, forefather, an intellectual forefather, right? Somebody who believed in the power of markets, but somebody who actually provided the scientific principles of of economics the way that Stigler and Friedman wanted to do economics, right? Self-interest is the um, kind of most important predictive principle of human nature. The invisible hand is the price mechanism (laughs) and ensures kind of the best allocation of resources in society. Individuals know best how to allocate their labor and capital. And Smith himself right, saw this in his statement of the invisible hand.
0: Here, we get back to Smith's theories of moral philosophy. Smith believed that people naturally acted from their own self-interest. And the invisible hand of the market relied on this fact. It relied on people doing what was best for them without government regulation or intervention. In the mid-20th century, University of Chicago scholars used Smith's idea of self-interest and the invisible hand to support their views of deregulation, free trade, and unchecked markets. But not everyone thought this was the correct interpretation.
1: A lot of Smith scholars immediately read their work and say, my goodness, that's a huge mistake, that's a huge misunderstanding, right? They're wrong. Um people who are sympathetic to the Chicago School and even some economists say, no, actually, there's a grain of truth. It, it's not wrong. It might be narrow, but it's not wrong. And I think, you know, from my view, it's really important to acknowledge, right, the Chicago School had a specific purpose in mind, right? They were trying to resuscitate and defend a particular approach to economics. And for somebody like Milton Friedman, they had a very distinct, very strong political agenda attached to that, right? That it was... um scientifically true that markets worked in this magical way and therefore, right, deregulation and therefore (laughs) scale back the welfare state. Now, from my view, the, the, quote, harm (laughs) that's done to Smith is not so much that that's a misreading of Smith, but that it, that it can't stand alone without completely ignoring, right, what he wrote in the Theory of Moral Sentiments, and what he talked about in terms of um, his views of politics in the Lectures on Jurisprudence, and indeed in the Wealth of Nations. So, um, I think what we have to realize about that particular view of Smith, right, that Smith associated with the the Milton Friedmans of the world, and um, you know, undeniably aligned with the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute, um, is that that version of Smith has become so powerful and so influential, but it relies on an assumption that Smith had it in mind, right, to kind of create this science that was narrow and that that science supported this political vision. And I think there's plenty of space to you know, interrogate that. The Invisible Hand is in, at the broadest level, is at the broadest level, a story about unintended consequences. Um, that there can be, under certain conditions, situations where people um, can promote the public good without intention or direction. But that does not necessarily imply, right, an aggressive policy of deregulation. And... <laughs> um, what I think The Invisible Hand does point us to is the broader context in which Smith is, in, is using that metaphor, um, which is a story about merchant capture of the state. Right? So this idea that Smith was anti-government, right, is mistaken because it, it, it misreads Smith's criticism as criticizing the state when, in fact, he's criticizing people in positions of economic power, right? Merchant interests, people who are leading the British East India Company, who want to persuade legislators to pass legislation in their favor so that the East India Company can do its own thing and ravage an entire continent at the expense of the public, So Smith's criticism is directed towards... Those people, right, the merchant mindset, not the government. Does he, does he still think the government is kind of weak and incompetent sometimes? Yes. Is he skeptical of politicians' cognitive and moral abilities? Yes. But is his criticism ultimately directed at governments? I don't think so. Um, I think it's more directed at this merchant mentality, right, that you can use the state to promote private interest above the public interest. And that's what he's really worried about.
0: How do the ideas in this text bleed out into society and culture and economies, in ways that we recognize?
1: So I think of reception and influence being two sides of the same coin. Another metaphor that I've used is kind of a supply side story versus demand side story. Right? Supply side story of Smith's influence is there's something innate about The Wealth of Nations, right, that 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 enabled it to withstand the test of time. That it, in and of itself is um, kind of like the Bible, right? Transcendent. Of course, Smith had incredible literary talents. Of course, his vivid illustrations were powerful. And of course, he's speaking to perennial questions, right? National wealth, those questions about national wealth, how to manage it, um, questions about trade, they're never going to go away. But I think it's easy to be blinded by our assumptions about what makes a text great, right? And so that's why I take more of the demand side approach to understanding influence, right? It's the demands that we bring to the text. What is it that we're trying to get out of the text? In the early 19th century, the demands that Americans were bringing to the text was, was a deep need to understand and create a new science of political economy, but one that didn't just originate in in Europe, but to kind of take the sources from European authors. Smith wasn't the only one, right? You had Jean-Baptiste Say, you had Ricardo, you had Malthus, you had John Stuart Mill, and they're taking these sources and saying, okay, what can we take to kind of create our own science of political economy for American circumstances? Right. So Smith is influencing American thinkers in that way, but it's not because Smith you know, from the grave is exerting influence. It's because Americans are coming to Smith with specific needs. Same thing with the idea of free trade, right? Smith is referred to as the apostle of free trade throughout the 19th century. And um, I, I find it hard to believe that Smith himself set out to write the book to become the apostle of free trade. Yes, he championed free trade. But really what happens, like why did that reputation become so prominent is because later thinkers in kind of need of Intellectual legitimation in need of authorities to invoke, to, to identify a kind of political stance that they're taking for or against free trade. Look to Smith and say, hey, the father of the science of political economy was in favor of free trade. Therefore, we must be right. Therefore, we must pursue these policies. Right? And, and that is a way in which we have to understand influence.
0: Smith didn't set out to create the discipline of economics, but that's what he did. By combining his experience in moral philosophy, his views on the physiocrats, and the influence of the Scottish Enlightenment thinkers, Smith laid the foundation for how we continue to think about production, trade, capitalism, and wealth.
1: I think Adam Smith brought our minds to life. And he also humanized the way in which we understand economic life. even if today we see him as the founder of economics, and economics is so different from the way Smith envisioned it, he, he made the science of political economy fundamentally about humans. And I think for that, you know, uh, the world has Smith to thank.
0: Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Fairon Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss. And our branding is by Dan Petschy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.